Chapter 12, The Gospel of Peace, by Marty Troyer. Scott Brown was a model peace activist, environmental protector, restorative justice facilitator, criminal justice reformer, anti-war activist. He was an author, public debater, and leader of movements. He was informed, passionate, funny, and perhaps most importantly, available. His mission statement was, be right, win every battle, and help save the earth. If there was something to do with peace and fighting violence, Brown was there. He was the essence of a protagonist, antagonist, and pacifist. When he told his story to my church and friends, I couldn't help thinking, this is the kind of man I want to be when I grow up. There was only one problem. Scott's inner life was a complete mess. He was a broken man inside. His marriage fell apart. His co-workers had to walk on eggshells around him. And he was motivated by a wounded soul that needed to earn worth through works. His tactics included shaming, blaming, and creating enemy images of the very people he was trying to convert. He once screamed to a scientist in a radio interview, Stop lying to people! So many times, they eventually cut him off. Brown's story is not unusual to me as a pastor activist in Houston. Many times have I witnessed men passionate for the cause of peace, but noticeably without peace in their hearts. Ironically, peace activists can be some of the hardest people to work with. Brown's story also connects with me personally, as I long to live with the peaceful skills of parenting, conflict transformation, and peace witness that I preach week in and week out. All of us men, some of the time, and some of us men all of the time, live in a disturbing world without peace, both in our public selves that perpetuate havoc on those around us, and with the private, hidden corners of our deeply troubled inner worlds. But Scott Brown couldn't see any of this. He later reflected, I was about as in touch with my feelings as I was the ring of Saturn. When his life finally scraped bottom, he was filled with sadness and uncertainty, and was bored with being angry. It seems like Brown got it half right. He mastered doing peacework, but he flunked being a peaceful man. Though his cause was right, his soul was a muddled mess impossible to want to emulate. There has to be an alternative to burnout on the one hand, and content passivity on the other. We don't have to choose between heroism and health. In this chapter, we explore what men can do if they want to make peace in their relationships yet find inner peace elusive. A true model of peace. More than anyone else in history, Jesus models the kind of healthy lives men are meant to live. He embodies being peaceful at heart, or what sociologist Brene Brown calls wholeheartedness. Jesus' genius at keeping the inner and outer life connected means he had both what Scott Brown had and what he didn't have. 
We all know Jesus was a radically ethical man, but he also tended his soul and still needed to hear God say to him, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Luke 3.22 Jesus promised the blessing of finding our core identity as children of God when we make peace. He unashamedly spoke of his male protégés as his beloved, while expecting them to live robust lives of justice for the hungry, poor, sick, migrants, and prisoner among them. As followers of Jesus, our capacity to radically love is directly tied to our capacity to vulnerably accept his love and our need for it. 1 John 4.19 Rather than Scott Brown, Jesus was the kind of peaceful at heart peacemaker we should all long to be when we grew up. As Anabaptist Christians, Mennonites are at our best when our inner and outer peace are embodied as two parts of the same whole. Early Anabaptist writer Hans Denk does a fantastic job of poetically capturing the tension of all Anabaptists between the inner life of trusting Jesus spiritually and the public living of Jesus-centered life, mission. No one can truly know Christ unless you follow him in life. And no one can truly know him unless you first have known him. As cultures and contexts have changed, Mennonites haven't always held them together well. On the one hand, the modern mental model of missions has left many in the church removed from the action and forced to define discipleship in terms of being good church members. On the other hand, when the world seems especially messy, we often focus too strongly on action and suffer from spiritual poverty. Today, many of us are passionate for both a new spirituality and a new world. We're not interested in workaholic absentee parenting for the sake of the cause or staying at home when it feels like the world is burning. Menno Simons, our namesake, has a sharp compelling statement about Christian action that's often quoted in Mennonite circles. True evangelical faith is of such a nature that it cannot lie dormant, but manifests itself in all righteousness and works of love. It clothes the naked, it feeds the hungry, it comforts the sorrowful, it shelters the destitute, it aids and consoles the sad, it returns good for evil, it serves those that harm it, it prays for those that persecute it, it teaches, admonishes, and reproves with the word of the Lord, it seeks that which is lost, it binds up that which is wounded, it heals that which is diseased, and it saves that which is sound. Add stopping nuclear war to that list and I'm all in. But the temptation to act removed from the power of the Spirit is hard to resist. We're supposed to be self-made, courageous men who shed our blood to save our people. Simon saw it differently. For him, action is rooted in personal transformation. What we don't see quoted as often is what Simon says immediately before telling us our faith can't be passive. 
If you sincerely accepted and believed the divine goodness, mercy, and the boundless love of our beloved Lord Jesus Christ toward you, if you believed all this, you would doubtlessly love him in return, him who has shown you such great love and grace without any merit on your part. And if you would return the love with which he has loved you and yet loves you, you would, believe me, not tire of seeking and following him. We too often think of Jesus' call to discipleship as a call to morality. It isn't. It's an invitation to live the abundant life he promised of becoming fully human and fully alive. Yes, the dignity of being God's partner in making peace in our violent world is essential to becoming fully alive. But so is doing our inner work. We just don't stop there. As I write in The Gospel Next Door, In his living and loving, we see who we are meant to be, intimately connected to God, free to fully be ourselves, connected passionately to community, and committed to creating shalom in our world. In order to do the things that Jesus did, we must become the kind of man that Jesus was. Jesus once said, You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Matthew 7, 16-18 We've got to become the kind of men who naturally live the life of Jesus and his teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere throughout the Gospels. Men of integrity, whose peaceful hearts pour out into peaceful living. Jesus' story is as much about violence as it is about anything. In the face of a Me Too moment of violence against women, Jesus non-anxiously dispersed a lynch mob, John 8, 1-11. When everyone was watching, he called out his buddies to stop pretending violence works, Luke 9, 54-55, and chapter 22, 49-51. He was tender-hearted to those who didn't get it, took time to relax by himself, and asked for help when needed. And then when he was killed and resurrected, where unspeakable violence was met with the unspeakable gift of friendship and offer of peace, John chapter 20 through 21. What we're up against... We live in what military and business leaders call a VUCA world. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. VUCA fits my experience as a dad and a pastor like a glove. It's not that our list of public sins is longer than before. It's that we're more aware. We're pushed to deal with racism, sexism, homophobia, militarism, police brutality, Islamophobia, 
poverty and climate change in ways that are near impossible to understand through the idolatrous lens of our American exceptionalism. Our new normal is kids being shot in schools, church members being shot during worship, so-called enemies being killed by our drone missiles, and nuclear threats by ego-obsessed men in power. We have the names etched in our minds of victims of police brutality. Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, Tamir Rice, Stefan Clark, Yvette Smith, Miriam Carey, Eric Gardner, Philando Castile. These problems and the speed with which we're expected to address them are part of what scientist Will Steffen calls the Great Acceleration. Life and the news cycle move fast. The problems we face are global yet painfully personal, complex yet close to home. Trying to think our way through them feels like trying to imagine a billion grains of sand. Our inability to respond to every major crisis can feel like a lack of caring. We often feel paralyzed when confronted with the massive number of causes, needs, caring opportunities, and calls to get involved now. From the scroll of Facebook to our news apps, we see the brokenness of our great acceleration everywhere, and we are overwhelmed. No dad should have to involuntarily remember the names of men and boys who killed kids like mine in places called Santa Fe, Parkland, Newtown, West Nickel Mines, and Columbine. No teacher should have to consider whether he'll need to choose between keeping his students or himself safe in an active shooter scenario. No husband should need to worry about his wife walking on a public trail in Toronto or running the marathon in Boston. And no boy should have access to his parents' gun when psychologically tormented and struggling to make his way in the world. And yet we do. Scripture has its own ways of talking about broken societies and worldviews. When groups stray from God's agenda and pursue their own, they're being unrighteous or not right with God and others. When holistic shalom is held back for some people, groups slide into injustice. Corruption, wickedness, evil, and sin are words used to flesh out the state of societies. So we read stories about unjust empires like Egypt and Israel that deserve to be in ruin. We're introduced to kings God never wanted to appoint, who stray repeatedly into hoarding and violence. We know by heart the story of God's flood to reset the human project because the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6, 11. Jesus says the wealthy devour widows' houses, Mark 12, 40. And he weeps because society does not know the things that make for peace. Luke 19.42 This all sounds too familiar. Things are not as they intended to be. 
peaceless at heart. It gets worse. These cultural problems have a profound impact on us psychologically. A 2008 study by insurance giant Blue Cross Blue Shield reports that the number of people experiencing depression skyrocketed 33% between 2013 and 2016. Every individual suffers for unique reasons, and their care needs to match their particular set of circumstances. But there are also shared root causes that may help us understand this mental health pandemic. Conflict Studies professor Vern Neufeld Redekop provides a helpful analysis of human identity needs, as Don Neufeld discusses in his chapter above. Based on Redekop's analysis, I wonder whether our deteriorated notions of action, security, and connectedness leave us hollowed out and traumatized. Many Christians find it hard to connect their vocation to their call to Christian action. Action for ordinary Christians has often been reduced to performing the duties of a good church member. This largely entails providing financial support, supporting the church in its activities, and putting in time as church volunteer. It hasn't always mattered what one's job is, so long as it produces income to donate and save. And that's not good enough. According to David Graeber's research, 37-40% to 40% of workers believe their jobs don't make a meaningful contribution to the world. That's millions of people who think if their job disappeared, it wouldn't matter. Millions of people locked into boredom, lethargy, lack of dignity, and feelings of despair and worthlessness. Though, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. We do meaningless work disconnected from the common good or righting the felt wrongs of the world. We're meant to be healers of the world who seek above all else the public kingdom of God's shalom for all. And yet, 40 to 60 hours a week we labor to buy a bigger house. Heart of Darkness author Joseph Conrad cuts to the core. A man is a worker. If he is not that, he is nothing. Real life, our culture tells us, is about money, security, position, power, and happiness. Christianity defines real life differently. We're called to follow Jesus in specific actions like protecting widows, defending migrants, providing health care, and letting the oppressed go free. Luke 4, verse 18. Excluding peacemaking from our concept of vocation and action neuters us in the face of violence mentioned above. Our work should build the common good. Our vocation should connect to our call to Christian action. Redekop includes security as another human identity need. Many of us no longer feel that our world can be trusted to provide security. The religious-like promises of capitalism tempt us to believe that the GDP and a 401k are the seeds of security. 
but there's an extraordinarily close connection between income inequality and individual health and security. The research of Richard Wilkinson outlines how the world's most economically unequal countries experience the most crippling social and personal dysfunction. Life expectancy, infant mortality, gun violence, teenage births, child well-being, social mobility, and mental health are all devastatingly worse. Canada is in the middle of the pack of these, while United States is off the charts. When it comes to mental health, for example, countries with unjust economies have three times more people who suffer from depression. We're wired to be drastically impacted by our cultural problems. In this case, the very strategy used to pursue security undermines our security. As Wilkinson says, if you want to live the American dream, you should go to Denmark. Finally, Redicop identifies connectedness and relationship as human identity needs. Gone are the days when we knew our food's producer by name and Made in America was a trusted label. In its place is our growing awareness of sweatshop labor, slaves used to produce our chocolate and coffee, and North American energy consumption that degrades the environment of the poor more than the rest of us. We know those things. We may feel them. Yet these unintended consequences of our lifestyles feel impossible to undo. We feel a global connectedness in its negative reality, without a positive spirituality of global oneness to shape our actions. Part of our peaceless inner malaise is due to our complicity in a system we helped build that negatively impacts the poor, marginalized, and oppressed. Coping 101 When confronted with the social dysfunction of our VUCA world, many of us choose denial to cope with the trauma. We've embraced what Canadian novelist Douglas Copeland calls a culture of perkiness to deny our fears. Some self-soothe with the belief that, with God on our side, our planet is too big to fall. And we men have been socialized to cover up and hide our insecurities. Though, to be fair, news about a fourth straight Warriors-Cavaliers NBA Finals gets more coverage than disaster relief, men mentoring boys, or churches who work for nonviolence. One character trait of spiritually healthy people is their ability to accept reality as it is. We've got to stare social dysfunction in the face and not blink. Psychologist Mary Pfeiffer writes, Our emotional and physical survival depends on our ability to tolerate reality at least some of the time. We cannot act adaptively if we don't face the hard truths of the day. And that takes a lot of emotional bandwidth. The real question isn't whether we see reality. It's impossible to miss. Rather, the question is whether we see that our own spiritual immaturity is directly tied to our political and cultural problems. I used to think I was brave just to see reality clearly. 
But now I know that's not bravery, but perception. Bravery is naming our complicity in the state of the world and the land where we live. Our quietude is linked to the increased war budget. Our turn of the eye is linked to the abuse of women. For those of us not in the minority, our unanalyzed white male privilege leads law enforcement to believe they can act with impunity against our black neighbors. And here's something easy to miss about the psychological impact of our cultural problems. As bad as this can be for church people, everyone else is just as conflicted and hurting. We have bored co-workers, spiritually dead friends, and emotionally frazzled families. All of us are trying to cope and make our way in this VUCA world. The Gospel of Peace The good news is that we are not left to fend for ourselves. Christianity is about God's love for the whole world and our part in bringing God's kingdom to places like my hometown of Houston, as it is in heaven. Whether we're talking about our cultural problems or their psychological impact on us, peace is God's answer. Shalom equips us to take responsibility for the trauma of our personal lives, which is directly linked to the brokenness of our land. In this sense, peace is the Bible's biggest word, accompanying all the good gifts of God. Salvation, wholeness, safety, justice, restoration, meaningful action, peace of mind, the common good, and caring relationships are all part of God's peace, a gift that is freely offered to us. The Hebrew scriptures use the word shalom for peace, along with a host of other synonyms. Shalom is peaceful relationship with ourselves, God, others, enemies, and all creation. When things are working well, shalom is present. When social dysfunction and violence are present, shalom is missing. Shalom's connection to social justice can be seen in some of the more colorful images the Hebrew scriptures use to illustrate it. Isaiah envisions a land filled with an overabundance of camels that produce economic stability. Isaiah 60 verse 6. Zechariah envisions streets full of boys and girls playing safely, Zechariah 8.5. And Micah envisions security where everyone fearlessly sits in his or her own vineyard, Micah 4.4. 4. I have friends who attended every Houston Public Schools board meeting for years because they know schools are at the intersection of racism, poverty, and inequality and because their Christian faith commits them to the common good of all students, particularly those without a voice. It's tedious work that's outside of the limelight, as is most good peacemaking work. And yet, in their pursuit of just education for all, these friends are seeking the shalom of their city. Mennonites often say that shalom is more than just the absence of violence. Shalom is about creating what civil rights leaders called the beloved community, 
and what the prophet Ezekiel calls return to Eden. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 38. It's the presence of all good things, not just the absence of evil. Shalom suggests that personal healing and healing our world are one and the same. The ministries of Mennonite Men, Mennonite Central Committee, and Mennonite Disaster Service are all missions of shalom to restore our world to God's intended design. Without these positive restoration projects, our traditional quiet-in-the-land pacifism mentality falls flat. But shalom also very much does include the removal of violence. Weapons shall be beaten into farm tools. Soldiers' clothes shall be burned as useless. And the wolf shall live with the lamb. God protected Cain from the death penalty and tried to remove violence from the world with a flood. And Jesus repeatedly removes violence from a situation through word or deed. Knocking out a tooth from the person who knocks yours out is common sense. But Jesus calls his followers to stop violence with love for our enemies. The essence of violence is sin. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Overflowing with peace. We men must stay committed to nonviolence. It is a gospel lifestyle. As I write in The Gospel Next Door. It's not extra credit, or an elective, or a special track of special action for special people, the privileged few. This is the kind of life we'd naturally live if we truly believe Jesus' gospel. It is action rooted in theology, behavior rooted in belief, and discipleship rooted in the story of Jesus. What Menno Simons wrote in 1552 still needs to be our agenda today for the sake of our kids and our government's enemies alike. The Prince of Peace is Jesus Christ. We who were formerly no people at all, and who knew of no peace, are now called to be a church of peace. True Christians do not know vengeance. They are the children of peace. Their hearts overflow with peace. Their mouths speak peace, and they walk in the way of peace. A Christian message of shalom from an Anabaptist perspective offers a consistent vision for peace as an inner experience of salvation that overflows into specific peaceful action. One cannot disconnect the two any more than one can separate spaghetti from its sauce. I'll never forget a story the Anglican priest Kenneth Leach told just as I was beginning to see myself as an activist. In the story, he had just completed a lecture on Christian social justice when a woman approached him and said, Isn't it just so interesting that there is another Kenneth Leach out there who writes and speaks beautifully about prayer? I came because I'd seen your name and assumed you were him. Leach replied, Ma'am, there is no other Kenneth Leach. 
I'm one and the same. I write about both prayer and justice, uh, usually at the same time. That is the kind of men we need to become. Men whose hearts overflow with peace. In order to be peacemakers, we need to choose to act like them. And choice is a powerful force. Canadian novelist Louise Penny puts these strong words in the mouth of her famous detective, Gamache. We can choose our thoughts. We can choose our perceptions. We can choose our attitudes. We may not think so. We may not believe it, but we can. Life is a choice. All day, every day. Who we talk to, where we sit, what we say, how we say it. And our lives become defined by our choices. It's as simple and as complex as that, and as powerful. Choosing to identify our guiding principles today can empower us to choose peace when the situation demands it. Strong restorative intentions regarding nonviolence for us men are essential or will remain paralyzed by the great acceleration of our VUCA world. One of those good intentions should be connecting our vocation with the common good. When we think about bringing faith into the workplace, we should refuse to limit it to hosting Bible studies and putting Christian messages on our mark. Instead, we should find work that is, by nature, building the common good. No more valueless capitalism and working for the weekend. Our Christian vocation is no more or less than to seek the welfare, shalom, of the city, where we live, Jeremiah 29.7. That's not something we're meant to accomplish with a monthly service project. That's meant to be the agenda of our 9 to 5, Monday to Friday vocations as well. Another strong, restorative intention is to learn the skills needed to stop violence. Let's put peacemaking back on the agenda. To do that, churches will need to adjust their adult curriculum from only learning about peace to learning how to make peace. That includes stopping violence in our own hearts by learning to name and manage our anxiety. It requires learning how to fight well and deal with conflict in our marriages and friendships. And for some of us, it involves learning how to organize a peace march, lead nonviolent direct action training, or even be arrested. Men often hold power and privilege that position us to uniquely defend women, children, and the vulnerable other. And we should. Social media and church open mic sharing provide opportunities to speak against duplicitous and inconsistent messages regarding violence. And we should. Schools are usually open to displaying alternatives to military recruitment brochures and legally permit our boys to abstain from saying the pledge. And we should. Ephesians says that Jesus came to make and to proclaim peace. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And we should do it too. That's the importance of choosing guiding principles today so that tomorrow our behavior follows. Let's give our word to seek the shalom of our city. 
Let's commit to co-create with God a better world. As God's partners in justice, we're part of something larger than ourselves. We're part of a cosmic story about the restoration of all creation that's far bigger than we often know. Naming and nurturing strong, restorative intentions for ourselves can give us the dignity we need to see ourselves as part of the solution to the world's greatest problems. And like solving most problems in life, it all begins with us. Becoming Peaceful at Heart Perhaps the most difficult action we can take is becoming peaceful at heart. We cannot expect to live like Jesus if we do not become Jesus-like. So another strong restorative intention is personal formation. We men experience great insecurities, and many of us are motivated by psychic wounds. We resonate all too well with rocker Ozzy Osbourne when he sings, Mental wounds not healing, life's a bitter shame, I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. I'm in a group of 15 pastors where every single one of us admitted to using quality performance as a way to earn love. Don Neufeld writes that, For men, lack of recognition can crush our sense of self. This reminds me of a story of comedian Tom Arnold who, when asked why he wrote a certain book, is said to have replied with shocking honesty. I did it because I want you to like me. To be peacemakers, we're going to have to deal with our own insecurities. Grace is what allows us to face our personal shame and unevangelized zones with vulnerability and courage. And there will be no peaceful heart without vulnerability. It's the engine that drives spiritual growth. As Bob Dylan says, Behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. Scott Brubaker Zare names the difficulty and necessity of finding safe places for men to be vulnerable and to find a healthy integration between the outer and the inner. While he zeroes in on the importance of cultivating an inner spiritual life, I confess that as a young adult, this kind of talk left me cold. I was all about action, about doing something. Now I know better. Without this difficult self-reflection, we're destined to remain stuck on autopilot, incapable of loving and receiving love well. Which brings me back to the model peace activist Scott Brown I opened this chapter with. Without healthy masculinity, his peace activism nearly killed him. Like so many of us, he had to hit rock bottom before his journey to being peaceful at heart could begin. The core of his wake-up was the need for personal transformation as foundation for living. His book, Act of Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World, chronicles his journey. From operating on unconscious autopilot with a lot of anger and resentment, to a place of inner peace and empowerment. And here's the thing he gets that many church discipleship programs miss. It's not about more information. It's not about another book study, sermon, or podcast. 
It's not as if we don't know what following Jesus means. The struggle is having the inner resources to live the kind of lives we are called to live. Becoming peaceful at heart is about formation, a long journey of effort, vulnerability, and personal healing, none of which we are meant to do alone. Being in a community of common cause Christians is necessary for spiritual and missional vitality. The Psychology of Peacemaking Our inner peace drives our lifestyle of peace, and vice versa. Living peaceably can have a profound positive impact on us psychologically. Action is a powerful anecdote to despair. Scott Brown chronicles a long list of psychological benefits of living peaceably. Intentional action is linked to psychological health and maturity, well-being, vitality, and flourishing, and a greater sense of aliveness. As Brown observes, we come alive to ourselves and everything that supports life. People who take responsibility for the health of the world feel empowered, confident, and compassionate. I know countless people in Houston whose faith is flourishing because they've joined God on mission. My friend Bob Baldwin talks about the triple bottom line of active faith. It solves problems, strengthens the reputation of God, and changes us personally. Decades ago, Abraham Maslow researched the connection between action and health at length and concluded, Self-actualizing people are, without one single exception, involved in a cause outside their own skin, in something outside themselves. They are devoted, working at something, which fate has called them to somehow, and which they work at and which they love, so that the work-joy dichotomy in them disappears. Early Anabaptist writer Pilgrim Marpeck observes this truth as well. Service is commanded by Christ, and it is the means by which, according to the commands of Christ, Christians are prepared. Jesus was right when he proclaims that peacemakers are blessed. In that same sermon, he promises us that when we live by his teachings, we'll be as secure as a man who built his house on solid rock. Matthew 7, 24-27 Jesus is recreating a beautiful new world out of the old, filled with justice, joy, and peace. And he invites all of us, men included, to be transformed into people who can help make that reality. This is what we were created for. Peace within and peace for all. As Dallas Willard says, Nothing less than life in the footsteps of Christ is adequate to the human soul or the needs of our world. This is God's gospel gift of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Matthew 5.9